0: Well, thanks very much indeed for your welcome, Mark. It's great to be with you. And uh, we have a wonderful book to be going through the book of Ephesians. So if you'd like to be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians, please. Looking at a book like this, we have a treat in store. And even if you are familiar with Ephesians, I hope. ...that this will be a weekend where you will fall in love with this letter again. It is just magnificent. If you've ever been to Ephesus, I don't know if you've ever been to the ruins of Ephesus. It's, um, it's an absolutely magnificent site. If you get the chance, do go. Um, but uh, I'd say this letter is far more magnificent than the, than the location. Um, we're going to divide it up into five... We've got five main sessions. Uh, so I've I'm, I'm, picked five parts of it. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 this evening... Um, And I'm hoping to to fill in some of the gaps along the way so that uh, you don't feel completely cheated. Uh, But let's read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writing from imprisonment in Rome about 60 AD to a church he'd spent three years in about. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, By the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed Us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray... That you would open our eyes afresh to see wonderful things in your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, where is the church heading? The answer may surprise us, it's going where the world is going i just stop and think about that for a moment. Are you really hearing this right? The church is going where the world is going. That's where the church is heading. Does that sound right to you? Isn't there a part of you that thinks, hang on a minute, shouldn't the church be going in a different direction from the one that the world is going in? Well, where is the world heading? Are we in the West wallow in debt? Sploshing around in an economic quagmire, Britain and Ireland included. The Middle East looks like it could blow up at any moment. The church is being decimated in that part of the world. Society here in Ireland, north and south, drifts further and further from its nominally Christian moorings. And church life is not always a bed of rose petals, is it? Think of your church. perhaps don't tell it you came on this weekend to get away from your church our personal lives are often a roller coaster on the inside aren't they even if not on the outside we may be able to keep the straight face all that is certain is that we we will die oh and taxes where is everything going for the world and for the church Well, God's answer to that question is simple, but profound. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. God has a plan. And that plan is something which he has put into effect, verse 10. And it's going to come into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. And this plan is what? It is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together Under one head, even Christ. As the end of the chapter puts it, verse 22, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And then that intriguing phrase, for the church. Well, wonderful phrase. It's who you know, isn't it, in life? And in eternity, it's who you know. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know the one who is going to be head over all things. The universe, the world, and the church are all heading in the same direction, to a single destination, to one place, and one place only, to the place where the Lord Jesus Christ is head over everything. Now, it may not be evident yet, But one day, it will be as plain as the nose on your face that Jesus is Lord. And in the heavenly realms, it is already clear. In the heavenly places. Verse 3. Now, one of the pleasures of living back in London is you do have access to a lot of culture. You know what I mean? Culture. Great stuff. Um, One of my favourite places in London is uh, Churchill's War Rooms. I don't know if if any of you have ever been there. If you're over in, it's just sort of back behind the the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Square. It's where he operated from during the Blitz. And you go right down underground, several storeys, and you can see it's all laid out as it was then. And there's a big, huge map on the wall of all the operations that are going on. And it's never quite as good as in Hollywood, is it? In Hollywood, they, they have this enormous table, don't they? The, the operations room where the whole field and theater of war is set out in proper relief. They obviously spent a huge amount of money making the set. Um, and you can see the whole thing laid out on a table, the, the little tanks and the planes and the subs and the ships and the missiles and the troops. They're all represented, and you get all these people in their fancy uniforms around the table moving things um, to work things out in the theater of war and trying to work out how to defeat the enemy and where it's all going to end up. Well, in Ephesians 1, and in Ephesians, it's as if God's emissary, his apostle, his sent one, verse 1, the apostle Paul, is inviting us into the operations room of the theater of war in which God is fighting to overcome all his enemies. And he shows us at a glance the whole plan of campaign. From start to finish, from eternity to eternity. He points back to choices made, verse 4, before the creation of the world. He points forward to the end game, the final coup de grace in verse 10, when all will be under one supreme authority, that of one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the outcome of the conflict is not in any doubt. For we are talking about a supreme commander who, as verse 11 puts it, works all things according to the purpose of his will. All things. It's one of those great verses, isn't it, which reminds us of God's sovereign control over everything. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. Yes, everything, big and small, But why are we being shown this? Why have we we've been brought into this room, this theater of operations? Well, because if we're Christians, and he's writing to Christians, we have been caught up in the life of this supreme Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Christians in Ephesus are not just believers, I think that's probably what faithful means in verse 1. They are the faithful ones, those who are trusting. But they are trusting, they are in Christ Jesus. And this is one of the phrases that echoes through this book, particularly in these early stages, about being in Christ. End of verse 3, for example. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So there's this double location. You know, where am I? I don't know about you, but when I was uh, sitting earlier having a cup of tea. um, in, in Ben and Claire's house, I wanted to know, where was I? So what do I do? I get out my phone and go to Google, Google Maps and press the button, location, where am I? And I discover there I am, somewhere in the middle of County Down. Um, well, where are we as Christians? What, what, if we press location uh, in our spiritual Google Maps, where do we find ourselves to be? Well, we find ourselves actually in a double location. Because verse 1, to the saints in Ephesus, in Christ Jesus, they have a double location. They are, they are as it were, living in Coleraine, but also living in Christ. They're living in Carrick, they're living in Christ. They're living in Cork, they're living in Christ. Two places at one time. One physical, one spiritual. And 11 times in verses 3 to 14, the phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in whom, is used. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is incorporated into Christ, united with him in a union solidarity. And through this solidarity with Christ, we are the recipients of the most amazing gifts that come to us. Gifts that should make us say, wow. I mean, it's hard to make people like us say, wow, isn't it? Genuinely. I mean, when you get those presents at Christmas you'll you'll try and be polite and express appreciation but i would doubt very much if any of your presents this christmas i'm sorry to disappoint you ahead of time but i would doubt very much if any of them you open them and you go wow genuinely spontaneously from the bottom of your heart you'll say something like Oh, that's very kind. (laughs) Very, very thoughtful, thinking, oh, no. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe you've got better present givers in your family. Um, But these are gifts that when you see them and when you open them, there is a genuine spontaneous from the bottom of your heart. Wow. Is that what we have been given in Christ? Well, suddenly there's a note of praise that peals out like a peeling bell in these verses, isn't there? You pick it up in verse 3, praise be, or literally blessed be. But it's a good translation, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Wow, we've got to give him Praise. And this is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the letter that the whole universe is one day going to be under the headship of Christ. That's where it's all heading. And we are part of that because we have been set apart in Christ. We're united with him under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ as Christians and in the church. And the local church is, if you like, the prototype of the world's destiny. Because the world is one day going to be living under the headship of Christ. Like it or not, the whole of the universe is going to be under the headship of Christ. And the local church is a prototype of the destiny of the world. It's, if you like, a small-scale working model of the future of the universe. What does it look like, the future of the universe? Well, have a look at the church, local. Not just universal. But look at the church, local. And that... That group of people and the way they operate. That is a working model of the future of the entire universe. Because here are a group of people living under the authority of Christ. I remember once being asked in, in Dublin for a purpose that doesn't need to concern us. Uh, what my, my f- our five-year plan was for the church. I don't know if you think in terms of a five-year plan. Uh, I thought it was a bit grand to have a five-year plan. Uh, it strikes me that the only time we get any kind of planning in the New Testament is James 4, and that's just for a year, uh, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. But, okay, so we tried to think of a five-year plan, uh, and it's very hard not to sound grand when you're thinking of five-year plans. But I tell you, this is on a vastly grander scale. This whole, where is it all going in the future? And By God's sheer undeserved generosity, the Church of Jesus Christ is caught up in these purposes. You and I, if we're Christians, are the only fitting response is, wow, praise be to God. And I want to suggest to you that this, these verses give us five specific reasons to praise God for his generosity as we head towards the final destination of the universe and of the church. First thing, first reason to give praise to God for his generosity is his, the total provision that we have in Christ. Total provision in Christ. Verse 3. Praise be. To the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ, owing to our union with Christ by faith. It's a spiritual blessing probably because it's mediated through the Spirit of God. Not that it's it's kind of airy-fairy or necessarily intangible, but it comes through the Spirit of God. It's in the heavenly places where Christ reigns supreme. We don't yet see this, but it's ours. And we need to take it on trust. And it's every. Spiritual blessing—it's not just some spiritual blessings. There is not a single spiritual provision that we lack if we're Christians. We have it all in Christ. We use that expression sometimes about other people—that they have it all. Do you ever say that about somebody or think that about somebody? You know, they've got good looks, they're intelligent, they work hard. You shouldn't be allowed to work hard if you're intelligent—that's that's that's cheating. Um, They're musical. They've got sporting ability. They've got a good job and a good income. They've got well-off parents. And guess what? They're going out with someone who's got good looks, intelligence, or married to them. You know, it's just, they have it all, we think. Well, they don't, actually. They'd have it for a short while. And then their good looks begin to crumble. I mean, look at me. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER Now, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We have it all. We really do. But that shouldn't surprise us, should it, when we remember that the Christ that we're united with is destined to be the head of the universe. And yet, enemy propaganda, because remember, we're in a spiritual battle, as we'll discover later on in this book. Enemy propaganda is constantly telling us that God is keeping back from us things that he really ought to give us now if he loved us. I mean, is there a blessing that you can think of that you reckon God should have given you by now that you don't have? Maybe you feel very lonely. You don't really have a close friend. You'd love a husband. You don't have a husband. You'd love a wife. You don't have a wife. You'd love children. You don't have children. You'd like a good job. You don't have a good job. Is God mean? Is he nasty? Is he not cashing in on his promise to you to, to give you every spiritual blessing? Well, remember they are spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. So that, when you say, does that mean we have to wait for everything? There's nothing here and now. There's plenty here and now. There's everything we need here and now to lead a godly life. But don't believe the devil's lie that God is keeping back from us things that would be good for us. There's nothing that we need now that our Heavenly Father has not provided for us in Christ. And all these things, as I said, they will pass. Even A marriage is, is not for eternity, it's just for life, just for a few years. There's no marriage in heaven. If you're single, be encouraged. That is the eternal state of bliss. The married people find that hard to believe, but it's true. Um, So let's praise God for the total provision we have in Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing. Let's praise God that we have been picked for a purpose. Verses 4 to 6. Verse 4. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his purpose or his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. If we're Christians today, it is ultimately not because we chose Christ, but that he chose us before he even made the universe. This is as humbling as it is amazing. And yet, God does not treat us as robots with artificial intelligence. This is not that, no, we would fail. What is it? The Turing test. Is that the test? Those of you who are into this kind of thing? There's some test, isn't there, where you sit behind a screen and You have to work out whether this is an artificial intelligence that you're talking to or a real person. Have you not heard of that? Any, well, ish. Well, we are real real people, aren't we? Yes? We are real people. We're not robots with artificial intelligence. We make genuine choices. We are genuinely accountable for our actions. And as... Paul goes on to speak in verse 13. This is how it works. We, we hear a message. To be included in Christ, verse 13, this all began when we heard the word of truth, verse 13. What's that word of truth? Well, the gospel of salvation. We came to realize that this is, this is very good news because it will rescue us from a terrible fate. And we trust in the Christ who has performed the rescue. So we hear the word of truth, verse 13, the gospel of our salvation, and better translation, when, the, I know the new 2011 NIV puts it this way when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. But why did God pick us? Because ultimately it's His choice even though we did believe. Well, verse 4 makes it very clear. It's to be holy and blameless in his sight. Not just set apart for him, though we are that for his service, but to live a life which is transformed. The image is there in verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. In other words, adopted into his family, that we should be his children. This is one of the great privileges of the Christian. Now, I don't have any first-hand experience of adoption. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you are adopted. But it does strike me from reading and and from talking to one or two people who have first-hand experience of adoption that that it's a wonderful process but very challenging The selection of the adoptive child. How do you select? Because you'll take one and not others. How do you then, having adopted the child, how do you then educate them so that they really fit into your family? Well, in God's family, the original family members, as it were, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are perfect in holiness and love. And the purpose for which God has picked his children for adoption is that they may share his family likeness and grow to be more and more like, as Hebrews puts it, our great elder brother, the Lord Jesus. Knowing that one day in our character, we shall be perfectly like him. 100% like him in character in the world to come. And increasingly like him in this world by his grace because that is the purpose he's picked us that we should be adopted into his family and should be holy and blameless yes, in a one-off sense but also in an increasing sense we must hold the both together set apart for him blameless in his sight the credited righteousness but also transformed by the Holy Spirit an increasingly changed person changed from one degree of glory to another It's not an either or, it's a both and. We've been picked for a purpose. Let's praise Him for it. So totally provided for in Christ. Wow. Picked for a purpose to be like God. Third, lavishly liberated. Verses 7 and 8. Lavishly liberated. In Him, verse 7, we have. Redemption and the picture of the slave market and being bought out of slavery. What is the price? Through his blood, it's the death of Christ. Now, liberation is usually costly. Think of D-Day, if you know your history of World War Two. Think of more recently Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, we can debate the effectiveness of the campaigns, but it's certainly expensive. That's beyond any debate, isn't it, in terms of bloodshed and lives lost? And our liberation from tyranny, the tyranny of the devil and the slavery of sin and the certainty of condemnation, is at immense cost the blood of Christ shed for us. And what does it lead to? Well, the other way of expressing it is, verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. That seems to me that that is a phrase that we are so familiar with. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to have the forgiveness of sins. If you're talking to someone who's not yet a Christian, you might use that language, perhaps, about you know, the need to have our sins forgiven. Um, it doesn't, in my experience, register much with, someone who's not yet a Christian, because unless the Holy Spirit convinces them that they need their sins forgiven, it, they don't see themselves as a sinner. Not in the sense that most of the world understand it. So to talk about the need for forgiveness of sins almost falls on deaf ears, doesn't it, when we're talking to our non-Christian friends. But even amongst Christians, we can sometimes just take it for granted. You know, the well, yeah, of course we have forgiveness of sins. Now let's talk about something else. Whereas it seems to me that this actually... When the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is talking about what does it mean to be liberated from slavery in this lavish way by God's only son going into the arena of war, as it were, and and sacrificing his own life for us, what does it mean? What's another way of expressing what that redemption from slavery is about? It's the forgiveness of sins. I want to suggest to you that we can never be reminded too often that that is the heart of our salvation as it is expressed in this age and in this life. We're constantly being told other messages about what we need to be saved from, you know, that that maybe ignorance, that we need a bit more education or poverty, we need a bit more sharing of the loot. Or maybe it's a personality that you have that needs to be adjusted or a character. But no, the Bible says again and again that the greatest need that we have and the greatest thing that could be done for us on this earth is that our sins could be forgiven. And not just on this earth. As we face, as all of us, all of mankind will, the the judgment of God. To know that we have been given forgiveness of our many sins. And the longer you live, the more you sin is a wonderful, wonderful gift. No wonder he then goes on to describe it in verse 7. it's in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, the wisdom of the cross. But the lavish riches of God's grace towards his people include not just the forgiveness of our sins, but, but wisdom and insight. Um, it can be the wisdom of the cross, but another way of understanding it is along with wisdom and understanding, that he gives us the forgiveness of, of our sins, and he gives us also a wisdom and understanding on how to live as Christian people. So as you think back to it's right at this very moment, isn't it, in history, that the, the, the last troops are leaving Afghanistan, I think they've just left, haven't they? The last American troops, the British a while ago. So there's Afghanistan on its own. How's it going to do post-liberation? Well, how are we going to do post-liberation? Well, the answer is that God pours his spirit of wisdom into our lives. He gives us the spirit and the spirit gives us wisdom and insight as we shall see later on. Our response? Wow. Later in the chapter, he prays for more of that wisdom, that they'd know more of the God who rescued them. Get to know him better. Now, we've done three of the reasons for praise. Are you, are you surviving? Are you still with me? We've got two to go. We'll try and be, be, be briefer. Reasons for praise. Number four. Now, we are in the know. Verses 9 and 10. Now we know this. The word he uses is um, verse 9. And God has made known to us the mystery of his will. I don't know what, what you think of when you hear the word mystery. I mean, maths is a mystery to me. I might just scrape through GCSE and all that. But, you know, if I sometimes see those, those uh, sort of formulae. On a, on a board, maybe it's in a film, or something. I, I just it's completely foreign language to me, I don't understand what it's about. And even if a maths professor, we've actually got a maths professor in the church I'm in, and uh, even if he sat down and tried to explain some formula to me, it would remain, remain a mystery. I actually saw my, my, uh, six, our 16-year-old son's homework, he's doing maths and physics a level. And I just happened to be, you know, switching off his light. As I said to him, I'd be a rich man if I got a pound for every time I switched off his light, as I passed his bedroom when he wasn't in there. Um, but I happened to go over to his desk to switch off his desk light, and I looked, I looked desk light, and I looked down at his homework that he'd been doing before the football came on, and uh, I thought, "Gracious me, I can't make head nor tail of that." Uh, it was maths or physics or something. Um, it was a mystery to me. Well, mystery here and mystery in the Bible is used in a different sense, and it's really important to get hold of this, I think. Mystery here is describing something that was hidden and is now revealed. So don't think of the maths formula and the mystery that that might be. Maybe you're a brilliant mathematician, but maybe you're in my camp, and it's it's a mystery to you as well. Don't think of that. Think rather of a motor show and a new model that's under wraps, And maybe sometimes they actually put a wrap over it, don't they? They kind of have a a sort of thing over it. That's the technical word, a thing over it. Uh, But you know that there's a new model under there. And on day whatever of the motor show, there's a big fanfare. And they unveil the new model. Wow. Or, oh, don't think much of that, or whatever it is. Um, And it's in that sense in which... Mystery is usually used in the New Testament. It's something that was hidden. and whew, Wow, look at that. It's now revealed. Under wraps until the moment of revelation. In fact, I would like to go through all the English translations and change the word mystery for, to revelation. Because I think that's a much better word to describe it. It's a revelation. So that's a long-winded way of saying God has made known to us the, the revelation. He's revealed to us something that we didn't know before something that he's purposed in Christ, something we've been looking at earlier on. But the point is now now we know this. We know that the universe is heading to a place where everything is under one head, verse 10, even Christ. So if that's where the universe is heading, we can order our lives accordingly. How foolish it would be to go on living as if I was in charge of everything around around me, as if I was in control of my life and could make things happen around me when, in fact, that's not the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is in control of things. He is the one who can make everything happen. God is the one, verse 11, who who predestines everything according to his plan, the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So as I view my future, however long it may be on this earth, before the Lord returns or calls me home, this changes everything, doesn't it? How I view academic success, how I view career, sport, friendships, marriage, money, retirement. You don't think that far ahead. It's all going to look very different if this is true, what has been revealed. Which is no longer hidden, but we now know. We're now in the know as to where the universe is heading. So we'd be wise to align ourselves with that trajectory of the universe. And say, well, if everything's heading under the lordship and headship of Christ, then everything I do must be channeled along that trajectory in terms of how I view my future, how I view my relationships, my money, etc. Now we're in the know. Wow. We, we really are in the know? Yes, we are in the know. And fifthly, fifth reason to praise God is that the future is guaranteed. Verses 11 to 14. The future is guaranteed. Now, Ephesus was a port in those days. It was one of the great cities of the empire. Um, it had problems, even in the first century AD, actually, with silting up. If you know your geography or just think about it, you know the, the, sort of the end of Turkey is loads of great long valleys that come down to the sea. Um, and deforestation and the topsoil being carried down was silting up the harbors. So if you go to Ephesus today, the, the actual sea is miles away from the remains of Ephesus because it's just silted up and silted up and silted up. But in those days, it was a port... And it had huge warehouses. And if you were bringing goods in or sending goods out, uh, there were bonded warehouses. I was brought up in Southampton, which is a port city. Um, and, of course, its containerization has changed all this. But when I was a kid, there were bonded warehouses where goods would be brought, they would be sealed, and they would await the collection of the person who bought them. Brought on a ship, put into a warehouse, sealed, and then you'd wait for the owner to claim them. And that seems to be the idea that maybe in the back of, perhaps, perhaps that's the idea that's in the back of Paul's mind as he writes this about you were sealed, verse 13. Uh, and that seal is like a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. In other words, it's as it were, God has bought us the cost of the blood of his one and only son. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit so that it's clear that we belong to him. And one day, he's coming to pick us up, so to speak. And to take us to be with him. Because he's purchased us. Certainly, the, the idea of, of, in verse 14 of, of a deposit guaranteeing is there. In fact, interestingly, the word is, is one that I've seen in the window of jewelers in, in the high street in Greece. Or in high streets in Greece. Um, and the word now in modern Greek is used, it's arabon, it's, it's, it's used of an engagement ring pledge. If you see, a finger, if you see uh, an engagement ring on a, on a girl's uh, finger ring uh, ring finger finger ring. <laughs> I knew it was going to come out wrong. I was desperately trying to think of the right way around to say it. It came out wrong. 50-50. There you go. Um, that's, you know, that, that one. Number four on the left hand. Um, you know that she's pledged to be married. Somebody loves her enough to commit to her for the rest of their lives together. Well, God loves his people enough to commit to them for eternity. And for those who are trusting in Christ, the future is guaranteed. And all of this is verse 14 to the praise of his glory. And it's the glory of his grace. It is astonishing generosity. And Paul says we who were the first to hope in Christ, meaning we Jews probably in verse 12, uh, that we might be for the praise of his glory. But then you Gentiles, this is a mixed church of Jew and Gentiles, and you also were included in Christ, you Gentiles. And the church in Ephesus was largely Gentile. By this time, you were included as well. So we're in it together. And we are both guaranteed our future. So where is the church heading? The church is heading where everything is heading. To a single destination. The ultimate goal of the universe. Christ, head over everything. The purpose of the church, to be a working model of the future of the universe, where everything is under the headship of Christ. Let's pray. Let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, let's ask ourselves individually. If this is true, if this is where the universe is heading, am I living under the headship of Christ, in line with the future of the universe? Father, please help us to live in every area of our lives under the headship of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And a second question in relation to our churches, the churches that we're involved in. Are we aware of our role, that we should be working models the future of the universe all of us living together under the headship of Christ showing the world what it looks like Father we pray for the churches that we each represent here that they would be places which are increasingly aware of this future And which function better and better as working models of that future. And may we be praying and working towards that end in our local churches for the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.